John chapter 1, 19 to 28. John 1, 19 to 28. John's testimony to the priests and Levites. His testimony to the priests and Levites. And this is the witness of John. When the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? And he confessed and did not deny. And he confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. They said then to him, Who are you? So that we may give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. Now, they had been sent from the Pharisees. And they asked him and said to him, Why then are you baptizing if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, saying, I baptize in water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. It is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany, beyond the Jordan, where John was baptizing. Let's pray. Our Lord, we come into your presence, believing that this is your holy word. And we pray that you will teach us, guide us, and lead us into all truth by your Holy Spirit. Thank you for sending this sure and righteous, abiding and living word of God. We know, Lord, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Thank you so much for not leaving us blind and hopeless and in the dark, but keeping us in the path of light by your word, which is a light to our feet and a lamp to our path. We pray, Lord, that you will be pleased to exalt Christ in all things. And we ask in his name. Amen. In this passage, at the beginning, it says it is the witness of John. And we will see that this is actually not just the witness of John, which he had already mentioned in verses 6 to 8. There he also says that John came for a witness. But in our passage, it's not just that John came for a witness or a testimony as someone who would preach and teach the truth of what he was testifying about Christ. But in this context, the main issue is that John is now interrogated or confronted by some religious authorities as to what he is about, who he is and what he is about. And in this passage, we will learn two main things, two main practical things for us to see from John's example. One, John was able to stand for the truth and tell the truth of who he was in the face of the majority who were opposed to him. The majority of the religious authorities of his day were opposed to him. The priests, the Levites, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the, the Sanhedrin of the Jewish people that was a company of men who were um, given and in, in the practice of instituting and maintaining the religion of the Jewish people as an assembly, uh, as an authority that would teach them what the Bible meant here and what it meant there and what the people should be practicing in their synagogues, in the temple, and in their daily life. They were the ones 
who not only taught what the, they thought the Bible said, but they also instituted other practices not found in the Bible. So this is the company of people that John the, the Baptist, John the son of Zacharias, he has to deal with them, he's confronted by them. That's one of the issues that comes up here, and we'll see John preaches the truth, takes his stand in the face of his opponents. That's one matter. The other matter is the tremendous humility of John. You see, when, when we see people throughout history and in our time taking a stand away from the conventional wisdom, away from the majority, sometimes those people who, who are on the sidelines are fanatics. Sometimes the people on the sidelines are crazy. Sometimes they are mad. They don't know what they're talking about. They don't know what they're doing. Sometimes that also happens, right? Yeah. But John is showing that he's not there for himself. He is there for Christ. Yes. And so he is preaching Christ. He's not preaching fanaticism. He's not preaching himself. He's not drawing attention to himself as the, as the goal and as the person in whom they should put their faith. No, he's saying, put your faith in Christ. He keeps himself humble and he points the finger and everyone to Christ and Christ alone. That's the other major truth I would like us to see from this passage. All right, so now let's begin at verse 19. Verse 19, and this is the witness of John. So what's about to happen, he testifies about who he is in the face of opposition and who he is in relation to the person and work of Jesus Christ. And he is testifying or witnessing to this. First, in this passage, when the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? The priests are those who are descendants of Aaron and Aaron's family. Aaron in the time of Moses. So this priesthood has been instituted for about fourteen to 1,500 years before this incident. And the Jews knew, because they kept, kept track of the, the genealogy, when they kept track of that, they kept track of who was who in the line of Aaron and made sure in their records who was fit. So that is the priests. Those were the ones who conducted rituals in the temple and, in, and even had access to the most holy place, than the, the place where the Ark of the Covenant was and other uh, valuables and other uh, religious objects that God had uh, deposited there in the most holy place. That they had exclusive access to that. The priests did. And they were also teachers of the people. So they did the rituals of the temple and were the overseers of everything in the temple and even in the most holy place where the Levites could not enter. The Levites could do things on, on the perimeter of the temple and also go into the main place, which was called the holy place, and do some of the rituals there. They were charged with that. And then they were also charged to teach the people. So the priests, the Levites, they conducted certain rituals in the temple, which the common people could not do. Not just anybody could do it. Not even the tribe of Judah could do it. Not even the tribe of Reuben or any other tribe could do it. Only the men of this family of Aaron and the tribe of Levi, they were endowed with that. So they have great respect. They have great authority among the people, right? And it says in verse 24 that they had been sent from the Pharisees. 
Now, in the Sanhedrin, the Sanhedrin, or the council of the elders of the Jews, they had two main factions there in that council. One faction was the Pharisees, and the other was the Sadducees. And according to the beliefs of the Old Testament and the New Testament, if we were to speak in comparative or relative terms, the Pharisees were more accurate, even though they had many false teachings, they were more accurate in certain things than the Sadducees. The Sadducees would be comparable to, to today's liberal. Today's liberal. That is, they deny miraculous things and they deny certain things like that. They deny the miraculous. The Pharisees believed in the miraculous, but the Sadducees did not. To give one example of this conflict that they had within this body of Jewish teachers, the Pharisees were more accurate in some things than the Sadducees, though they had plenty of wrong teachings, the Pharisees did. So, this is the body that's sending the priests and the Levites, some of them, to ask John, to interrogate John about what he's doing. It's natural that they should have that interest, because they are charged with teaching and guiding in every way, the Jewish people. So it's natural that they would have that interest. So they may have been coming because they are charged with it. But I think, based on what we know from other places, they were probably coming with evil suspicion. They're probably coming with evil suspicion since they called John. They said that he has a, a, a demon. And then they said of Jesus that he was a glutton and a drunkard. So they didn't like John and they didn't like Jesus and they made excuses for not believing John, this John, John the Baptist. They made excuses to avoid believing him by calling him a, a demon-possessed man. And then they made excuses for not believing in Jesus, our Lord Jesus, by saying that he was a glutton and a drunkard. John did not eat, or, uh, eat meat or drink wine, but Jesus did. So they said he was a demon and Jesus was a glutton and a drunkard. Well, I think it's likely that they came with suspicion, evil suspicion, confronting John. And verse 19, John likely knows that, that they're asking, who are you? So first his identity is mentioned. Who are you? So John clearly in verse 20 answers, and he confessed and did not deny. And he confessed, I am not the Christ. Notice the phraseology John the Apostle used in recording this in verse 20. John the Apostle, the disciple of Christ, he says, he confessed, John the Baptist confessed, did not deny, and he confessed. Why does John do that? John, is, John the Apostle is telling us why John the Baptist did it. He's making himself absolutely clear who he is, what his charge is, what his responsibility is from God, and he's saying, I am not the Christ. We see here that John the Baptist did not speak with a forked tongue. John the Baptist did not speak in a two-faced way. He did not say to one group one thing and, and another thing to another group. He told them forthrightly, directly, clearly what he was or who he was, what he believed. That's the purpose of John the Apostle telling us he confessed, did not deny, and he confessed. What did he confess? I am not the Christ. He didn't say, well, you know, maybe, maybe, I'm not so sure if I am, maybe I am, or I am the Christ. He didn't say anything like that. I am the Christ, but 
um, you don't necessarily need to believe in me. You can just do whatever you want. I'm just the Christ for certain people. He didn't say anything like that. He didn't mix and match anything. He just clearly told them the truth. Yes. And that's the way we all should be. That's the way all the prophets of the Old Testament were. That's the way the apostles were. And even in 1 Timothy 3, one of the qualifications of uh, a, a pastor or an elder is that he should not be double-tongued, the Apostle Paul says. He should not be double-tongued, which is another way of saying not a forked tongue. He doesn't hedge. He doesn't hedge his bets. He doesn't say one thing to one person and another thing to another person. He's a genuine man who tells his conviction the truth in whatever context, whether a private context or a public context. He says what needs to be said. And that's what John was. I am not the Christ. Now, would they suspect or would they think that it was about time for the Christ to appear? And the answer is yes. And the answer is yes. Because remember a few years earlier, about 30 years earlier, under Herod the Great in Matthew chapter 2, the, the Jews were expecting the Christ because the Jews, the Jewish authorities, told Herod the king that the Christ was to be born in Bethlehem and there was a man born in Bethlehem. So that would have been on their minds. Another reason is in Daniel chapter 9, in Daniel chapter 9, Daniel the prophet, 600 years before, gave a chronology or a timeline of what to expect to have an idea of when the Christ would be born, would be born in Bethlehem. He gave a chronology in Daniel chapter 9. So based on that, they would have had some sense, the religious officials of the day would have had some sense that the Christ was to appear in their generation, in their lifetime. And that's why he says openly and clearly, I am not the Christ, because they were curious. Are you the Christ? And remember, when we say the Christ or Christ, we're talking about the same word from the Old Testament, which is Messiah. Messiah of the Old Testament is the same as Christ of the New Testament. We're talking about the same individual, the same mediator, the same redeemer, the same deliverer, the one who is to come into the world to take away our sins. So he says, no, I'm not that one. Number 21, verse 21. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Another clear, direct answer. I am not. Now, why would they ask if he is Elijah? Why would they ask that? The reason was... Um, among the Jewish people at that time and even subsequent to that time and even in our own generation, the Jewish people have had a long history of believing that literally Elijah the prophet, Elijah the prophet would reappear. If you read 2 Kings chapter 1, there it says that Elijah was taken up in a whirlwind up into heaven. He was taken up into heaven, so that Elijah the prophet did not die. So among the Jews, based on the fact that he did not die, they think that he is hidden somewhere and that one day he will reappear and when he reappears, it will be in the days of King Messiah, as they say. 
in the days of King Messiah, right before he appears, right before King Messiah or King Christ appears, there will be Elijah who will reappear, the one who never died. And he's going to reappear and be a forerunner, a proclaimer of the Christ who is about to come. And some of you, if you have Jewish friends, you know that at their feast, one of their feasts, they, they have an empty place at the table, and they always keep it empty, a place at the table, because they say this is in the anticipation that Elijah will come. When Elijah comes, he will fill that place at the table. So the Jews have this long history of thinking that he will reappear. Uh, now, on what basis, on what basis do we have of thinking that Elijah is to come? Elijah is to come. Ma Malachi chapter 4. In Malachi chapter 4, it says this. If you find Matthew, go back a couple of pages to Malachi. From Matthew, Malachi. Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. Malachi the prophet, who lived about 500 B.C., he says this. Malachi the prophet, 500 B.C., says this. Verse 5. Chapter 4, verse 5. Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. And he will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the land with a curse. God is saying through Malachi the prophet that he is going to send Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. And what is the purpose of Elijah the prophet when he comes? Verse 6, to bring about restoration and repentance. Repentance and restoration so that families who are divided between one generation and the next, the fathers will be returning to the children and the children to the fathers. There will be restoration and or else God will come and smite the land with a curse. The people who refuse to repent will be cursed, is the point. So, Malachi actually did say Elijah is supposed to come. So then, if Elijah is supposed to come, is it the original Elijah of 2 Kings chapter 2 who is to come? Or, as some false religionists, like in Hinduism, in Hinduism they believe in reincarnation. They believe that our souls leave this world upon our death and then they come back into this world millions and millions of times into another person, into another body. And they say from Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, the Bible teaches reincarnation. Well, actually, no, it does not teach reincarnation. What did Malachi mean here? And we will see. Turn to Luke chapter 1. In what sense did Malachi mean that Elijah the prophet is coming before the great and terrible day of the Lord. Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. Now, who was the father and mother of John? John the Baptist, we call him. Zacharias and Elizabeth, right? Zacharias and Elizabeth. When the announcement is made 
to Zacharias that John would be born miraculously because both Zacharias and Elizabeth were elderly and they did not have any children. She was barren. And so God made a promise that she would conceive. And notice what it says. We'll begin at Luke 1, Luke 1 verse 13. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And he will turn back many of the sons of Israel to the Lord their God. And it is he who will go as a forerunner before him. Who is the him? The him is the Lord. He will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn back uh, to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Luke clearly says, clearly explains what is meant by Elijah. What he says is, verse 16, that John is going to turn back many of the sons of Israel to the Lord their God. Isn't that what Malachi said in Malachi 4, 6? Verse 17, it is he who will go as a forerunner before him, a forerunner, so Malachi said he's going to be sent before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes, and that great and terrible day of the Lord is most likely the first coming of Christ, because when he comes, he's going to preach repentance, and if you don't repent, you'll be judged for your sins. And then it says he's a forerunner before him, so John precedes chronologically in time the ministry of Christ. John the Baptist first preached repentance and forgiveness of sins, and then after John came Jesus. That's the sequence in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and even in John. That's the sequence of events. So he is, John is the one who is going to prepare people. Prepare people to do what? To turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children. That's from Malachi chapter 4. And the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous, so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And in our passage in John 1, this one here in Luke 1.17 and the one in, in John chapter 1, they are both citing our verse from Isaiah chapter 40. That Isaiah 700 years predicted that John would come and precede the ministry of Christ when Christ came in his first coming. Then also, Luke 1.17, there's a key phrase here. John the Baptist, the son of Zacharias, he is going to come in the spirit and power of Elijah. That's the true meaning of Malachi 4, verse 5. The true meaning of Malachi 4, verse 5 is that John the Baptist is the one who comes in the spirit and power of Elijah. And the spirit and power of Elijah, I believe, has to do with Elijah's extreme zeal for the Lord. Elijah the prophet, if, if we read about him from 1 Kings 16 
to 2 Kings chapter 1, if we read those chapters about him, he faced the religious authorities and even the political authorities of his day with great courage, with great zeal. With great courage and with great zeal, he faced opposition and preached against the sins of the people, their idolatry and their wickedness in very powerful ways he preached against them. He had a tremendous zeal for the Lord. And I believe that is why John the Baptist is called Elijah. Elijah in terms of a metaphor, but in terms of the actual meaning, he comes in the spirit and power of Elijah. He also comes with great zeal. Did not Elijah have to flee for his life and flee to remote places? Yes. Did he not preach in remote places also? Yes. And so in that same way, John did so. Wasn't Elijah thinking that he was the only one left, even though he literally was not the only one? At least in his mind, he was thinking he was the only one left. Nobody else is following the Lord. I'm the only one, Lord. And the Lord reminds him, no, there's 7,000 more in your nation of millions, but you're not the only one. Don't be discouraged. Yes, you are the only one among the religious authorities, but you're not the only one who actually believes the truth in the same way with John the Baptist. John is Elijah in that sense. He comes in the spirit and power of Elijah to prepare people to meet the Lord. But in terms of actually being Elijah, either a reincarnation of Elijah or a reappearance of Elijah from the book of Kings, he's not that. And that's what he's answering because the predominant Jewish belief was that Elijah literally was going to come back. Okay? And he's saying, no, I'm not Elijah. I'm not that. I'm not him in that way. Further, John 1, 21. John 1, 21. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. Are you the prophet? If your Bible says, are you a prophet? I think that it should rather say, are you the prophet? The prophet meaning a specific prophet that they were expecting. And it's likely that they in some way misunderstood that the Christ was not the same one as the prophet when actually the prophet and the Christ, according to what we will see in a moment, is indeed the same individual, the same one, that is the Lord Jesus. He's the same one. And why should we say that? Firstly, let's see that they should and were to expect a prophet to come. They were to expect a prophet to come. The supreme prophet, not just any prophet, but the supreme prophet. Deuteronomy chapter 18. Deuteronomy chapter 18. Deuteronomy 18 verse 15. Deuteronomy 18, 15. Moses writes, 18, 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. From your own countrymen, you shall listen to him. This is according to all that you asked of the Lord your God in Horeb on the day of assembly, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God. Let me not see this great fire any more, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, They have spoken well. I will raise up a prophet from among your countrymen like you, and I will put my words in his mouth. 
and he shall speak to them all that I command him. Now, clearly, God says in verses 15 and 18 that he's going to raise up a prophet among them, among the Jewish people. He says so in this passage twice. Now, the main thing to note is that not only were they to expect this prophet to arise, but that this prophet was actually the same as the Christ. And in that way, I think they did not understand what Moses meant. Now, let's see a confirmation that the Christ and the prophet are one and the same person. Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3, verse 22. 3, 22. Moses said, The Lord God shall raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brethren. To him you shall give heed in everything he says to you. And it shall be that every soul that does not heed that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. And likewise, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and his successors onward also announce these days. It is you who are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. For you first God raised up his servant, which means Christ. He raised up from the dead his servant and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. You see here Peter, and this is Peter and John, because they're explaining the miracle that had just been performed, that Christ Jesus is this servant of God. He is the seed of Abraham. He's the one that Moses and Samuel and all the prophets were prophesying. And he is the prophet, like Moses, that you should pay attention to. So it is Christ you should pay attention to who is prophesied from back in Genesis 18. Well, to answer the authorities, John the Baptist says in John 1.21, I am not the prophet. I'm not the prophet that Moses was predicting because that is going to be Christ Jesus, not himself. And he answered, no. Another clear, straightforward answer. John 1.22. They said then to him, who are you so that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? Now, clearly he's been denying who he is, saying things in the negative. So now they want to know in the positive. Who are you then? If you're not any of these, then who are you? And he gives an answer. He gives an answer applying Isaiah the prophet to himself. He applies Isaiah the prophet. We read earlier from Isaiah chapter 40. From Isaiah 40 verse 3, Isaiah 700 years before announced that um, a prophet would arise and proclaim these things, preparing the way for Christ to come. And he says in verse 23, he said, John the Baptist said, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. He applies the prophecy of Isaiah to himself. In the other passages of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it's usually someone else applying that prophecy to John. Like we saw in Luke chapter 1, it was Luke and actually the angel Gabriel, Luke recording those words. 
It was the angel Gabriel and Luke saying, the one who's preparing the way is John. But in this case, we have John saying it himself. He was aware. So John was self-conscious. He was aware. It's not as though some religious fanatics like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John later put this label on John the Baptist. No, John was self-aware. He knew what his commission, his call was to the ministry. And he cites this passage. I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness. He's the voice crying. Now, when it says crying, it means saying it loudly, shouting it out. He's not, in other words, though he's in an in a outdoor place or in a public place, he's not doing it in a cave and in a corner. He's not in a dark place. He's not in a very suspicious place. He's in an open place and he's shouting it. He's saying here that I am boldly, openly proclaiming, publicly proclaiming this truth, which is not what false prophets do. False prophets, false prophets, false teachers, they often conspire in dark and dirty dungeons. This, that's the way they behave. They find people, they whisper and mutter on the side to whoever they're trying to convince or use to manipulate the rest of the people. That's the way they usually behave. They're not open people. They're not forthright people in private and in public. They hide things. They conceal things. But that's not John, which is showing that he is willing even to die, right? He's even willing to die because the Jewish authorities could have easily arrested him and then accused him of something or arrested him and in the wilderness away from the Roman authorities and put him to death. They could have easily arrested him and put him to death. And he's facing this opposition very boldly, courageously in the face of opposition. Further, it's in the wilderness. In the wilderness. Why wilderness? Why in the wilderness and not in the temple or not in the metropolis of Jerusalem? Why is it in the wilderness and not there? Because the wilderness signifies that place of humility, that place of suffering, that place of weakness and affliction. Because he's preaching repentance. And when you tell somebody or you tell a crowd of people, you are sinners, you are wicked, you need to repent of your sins, then they are reminded of their barrenness in spiritual matters when they are in a desert. When they're in a desert, they are reminded that they are barren and, and worthless and wicked and unable to give themselves the water of life. They are unable to do it. Yeah. it. It has that benefit for John to preach in the wilderness. But also, I think it's in fulfillment of the people of Israel. Remember what happened when they were delivered out of Egypt, they passed through the Red Sea, where did they enter? They entered the wilderness, correct? When they entered the wilderness, when they were there, who did they have to depend on? Since they were humbled, since they didn't have food and water, who did they have to depend on immediately? God. So when they enter the wilderness, it just reminds them that they must be humble and depend on God for everything, and especially for the salvation of their souls. Yes. So that's why John goes in the, to the wilderness. And what does he do? He cites Isaiah, Make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. Make straight the way of the Lord. You see, 
When it says in Isaiah, and even Luke has a longer quote of Isaiah, when it's talking about making um, hills low and things like that, when it's saying that, it's a figure of speech, it's a figure of speech for there to be a smooth and straight way of the Lord. You see, God is a straight God. He's smooth. And in comparison to God, His ways are straight, right? His paths are straight, like it says in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understandings. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make your paths straight. Why? Because our paths are crooked. Yeah. Ours are twisted. We go here, this way and that way, serpentinely. We go this way and that way. That's the way we are with our life. But God's way is a straight way. And that's the way He is calling us to be on, to be on that path, the highway of holiness. That's the path we should be on. So John, preaching repentance, will cause people to realize through repentance and faith in Christ, they will be on that straight path, the way of the Lord. So when they are on the straight path, the way of the Lord, it will inculcate and it will cause the people to be more aware of Christ when he's walking on the path. When Christ then comes shortly after John to also start preaching publicly, they will already be accustomed to it and receive Christ as their Lord, their Savior, and follow Him. And this is one reason why Christ had crowds following Him, because John had already made the people anticipate the imminent personal first coming of Christ during His ministry. That's one of the reasons He had the crowds. And that calls and reminds us all that a true preacher the prophet, the apostle, and the preacher of today should be preaching the straight way of the Lord. That's what needs to be preached. Yes. And he calls him Isaiah, uh, says, as Isaiah the prophet said, John, as well as the Pharisees and the priests and the Levites, the Sadducees, they all believed that Isaiah was a prophet. They all believed in, in one way or another that he was a true prophet of the Lord. So if Isaiah was a true prophet of the Lord, what did Isaiah mean? He is making them, with this citation from Isaiah chapter 40, making them ask the question, when is this going to be fulfilled? If it's not fulfilled now, when is it going to be fulfilled? And among the Jewish people, there were some people who actually did believe that Elijah coming did not mean Elijah Literally, but Elijah figuratively, that is, in another prophet. And it happens to be John. Some of the Jewish people also knew that. Also in this regard, when Isaiah the prophet said, make straight the way of the Lord, a voice is calling out, they knew that that verse in Isaiah chapter 40, some of the Jewish people knew that Isaiah was predicting that right before the coming of Christ, Messiah, King Messiah, that there would be another prophet raised up and preparing the people for that. So when John interprets, John the Baptist and even John the Apostle interprets these verses, they are not Jewish fanatics um, hijacking scriptures from the Old Testament out of context and misapplying them. They're not doing that because there were some Jewish people who knew exactly what those verses meant and they just needed reiteration from John the prophet here, John the Baptist and Jesus later in his ministry to proclaim these very things. 
Verse 25. Now a justification for his practice. A justification for his practice. And they asked him and said to him, Why then are you baptizing if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? Why are you conducting this rite? Why are you conducting this ritual, this practice, this ordinance of immersing people in water like this if you're not the Christ, the Elijah, or the prophet? If you're no major figure like this, why are you doing it? And he's saying that he's doing it. He's already answered them in verse 23. I'm a voice of one crying in the wilderness. He's already answered them in that sense. But now he's going to answer them in terms of his humility. You see, their questions are assuming that you have to consider yourself and look at yourself as indispensable, as a hot shot. You have to look at yourself and think of yourself as a proud person, one who's got the, the privilege, or not the privilege, or more the honor of being able to do what nobody else can do, and you need to look at yourself that way. Because they're saying, if you're not the Christ, you're not Elijah, you're not the prophet, then why are you doing it? And I think he's correcting their misunderstanding of the baptism by expressing his humility. You're thinking that the person has to be great and to think of himself as a great person in order to do it. But no, now he's transitioning and showing us humility. He says, verse 26, I baptize in water. So I'm using water. I'm using a physical object. But among you stands one whom you do not know. You see... In the parallel accounts in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he says that someone who's going to come, the one who's going to come, the Christ, he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His ability to baptize or to immerse you is a spiritual ability, a greater ability, and a greater privilege, which I don't have. I just have the symbol. I just have the right. I just have the this practice of immersing people in water I don't have the power to do what Christ has. I don't have that. So yes, he's commissioned me to do this in water as a representation or as an illustration of us washing, being washed away from our sins and coming up out of the water in newness of life. Yes, I have that privilege of doing it, but I'm no great person. I'm no great person. The one who's coming after me, he stands among you. He's among, that is, among their generation maybe also in the crowds, as we'll see in verses 29 to 34 next time. He was maybe in the crowds, but at least he was living in their generation. He says, he stands among you. You don't know who he is yet, but I'm going to identify him shortly. The next day, he will do that. And who is this one? Who is this Christ? Verse 27. It is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. He who comes after me. They knew that there was a coming one based on passages such as Genesis 49, 8-12 where it says Shiloh will come. He who comes and, and other places in the Old Testament. So he was known as the coming one. Here he says, he who comes after me. So in time, chronologically, 
John was born first, Jesus was born second, and then John's public ministry was first, Jesus' public ministry was second, after John. So he came after John in that way. However, remember we saw a couple of places in chapter 1, but in terms of rank or in terms of person, in terms of identity, Jesus Christ is superior to John for what reason? Notice John 1, John chapter 1, it says in verse 15. John 1, 15. John, meaning John the Baptist, bore witness of him, of Christ, and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. John knows that Christ existed before him, even though John was born before Jesus in the world because of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. John believed in the Trinity. And he said, he existed before me from all eternity past. Even now also in John 1, verse 30, 130, John says, This is he on behalf of whom I said, After me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. This is why, this is why, even though chronologically Jesus is second, in terms of nature or identity, Jesus is superior. And so John does not let it go to his head. John does not let it go to his head, either in reference or in relationship to the common people, or in relationship to the religious officials of his day, or especially in relation to Christ himself and God himself. He does not let it go to his head. He says, he existed before me, and why? And because of that, what should he do? Verse 27, he says, The thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. This is describing what a slave does to his master. A master might come home from a long journey or from a, a long labor out somewhere. He might come home with dirty and filthy feet. He might come home desirous of just putting up his feet and having somebody take care of him. And who would take care of him in that way? It would be a slave. A slave that would untie the thong of the sandal, take off the sandals, wash the feet, right? So on and so forth, and take care of his master's wishes. And John says, I am not even worthy to do that. I am not worthy to do that. This is the humility of John. Though he has been commissioned with a major responsibility, though he could have easily, um, uh, uh, stri- uh, have easily struck a deal with the religious authorities, he could have easily been in the crowds of, with them and on the good side of them. He is not on the good side of them, and neither does he let it get to his head. He says, I am not even worthy to untie the thong of his sandals, the sandals of Christ. He says, he must increase, but I must decrease. John 3, verse 30. He must increase, but I must decrease. John is speaking. And he says, he says that he who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. John knows that Christ is above all because he descended 
from heaven to be born into the world. And also John 3:27. A man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from above. So when we are gifted, when we are held, uh, given a responsibility, we have the privilege of doing things in the name of Christ or for Christ. The focus needs to be Christ, not us. That's what John did. And he said that in the face of those people whose favor he could have curried, whose, whose money they might, he might have wanted, and so on. He could have desired what they had, but he did not. He said, I'm not worthy to untie the sandals of Christ. That's who I am. And finally, verse 28. These things took place in Bethany beyond the Jordan where John was baptizing. Bethany beyond the Jordan. Your Bible might have another name of this town or city, uh, but it is beyond the Jordan. And whether it's Bethany beyond the Jordan, because there was a Bethany on the Jerusalem side of the Jordan, on the western side of the Jordan, but, but Bethany beyond the Jordan, or the name of this other town that you may have, Beth Araba, um, was on the other side or the eastern side of the Jordan River. And he's identifying this, I think, for a couple of reasons. For one reason, to place it in time and space, to place it in history, to place it in a place that John the Apostle and his contemporaries might know that this is a real incident and a real place. You can go and check it. Go and ask the people of that town over there what was happening in the days of John the Baptist. Go and ask them and verify because remember we saw from the first lesson in the book of John that John is writing as a testimony and as an eyewitness of the things he saw Jesus say and do. John 19.35 and John 20.30-31 he testifies to this and even John 21.25. In various places John says so. So that's one reason. What we read about is not mythology, it's not legendary, there's no fables here, there's no fiction here, it's all concrete truth in our history 2,000 years ago this event happened. I think one reason he mentions the locality has to do with that. But another reason I think he's mentioning the locality has to do with the picture of what baptism is. Remember we said baptism in the original Greek language means to dip or to immerse or submerge the body in water, right? And we saw um, um, in our earlier uh, discussions that this is a picture in the Bible such as with Noah and the flood and the baptism that we conduct. But there's another place where this occurs, and that is Joshua chapter 3. Joshua chapter 3. Remember that Joshua and the people were to conquer the land of Canaan, and the first city that they conquered was a city near Jerusalem, in the basically central or, yeah, about the central region, and that would be um, Jerusalem, and then Jericho is east, a little bit northeast of Jerusalem, toward the Jordan River, and then we have the Jordan River, which goes north and south, and then beyond the Jordan, on the eastern side of the Jordan River, there are certain towns alongside the Jordan. And it's likely that this Bethany beyond the Jordan, or Beth Araba, 
which means house of passing. Arabah means to pass over. So this house or place of passing over was over there on that side of the Jordan River. And there were different ways that the people were able to, to go from one side of the river to the other side. And I think that this one was a significant one and probably near enough to Jordan River that this is why John was baptizing there. And why? Joshua chapter 3. When the people of Israel first crossed into the land of Canaan, this is where they crossed, the land of Canaan. Joshua 3, verse 14. 3, 14. So it came about when the people set out from their tents to cross the Jordan with the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant before the people. And when those who carried the Ark came into the Jordan and the feet of the priests carrying the Ark were dipped in the edge of the water, for the Jordan overflows all its banks all the days of harvest, that the waters which were flowing down from above stood and rose up in one heap a great distance away at Adam, the city that is beside Zarathon. And those which were flowing down toward the Sea of the Arabah, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off. So the people crossed opposite Jericho. And the priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the middle of the Jordan, while all Israel crossed on dry ground until all the nation had finished crossing the Jordan. This is the first locality. This is the entry point being on the eastern side of the Jordan, not in the land of Canaan, not in the land of promise on the eastern side. They are there. They, they come over the Jordan River into the land of Canaan. So what would that represent? One thing it represents is they're leaving their old life behind and they're entering into their new life. Just like when they left Egypt, they're leaving their old life behind. That's the meaning of the Passover, right? God passes over judgment that those in Egypt deserve. He passes over and He gives Israel life, representing also for us. Our judgment, because we were slaves of sin, is, is gone. Now we have a new heavenly master and we have this righteousness and we have this new freedom in Christ, our heavenly master. We're not slaves of our sin we are a master or slaves to Christ. And if we are a slave of Christ, then that's freedom. So, that's what's happening right here too. They are finally, finally leaving the wilderness and now they are entering into the land of Canaan. That's what happened with Joshua and the priests leading the people. Miraculously, the Jordan River stops its flow while the whole nation crossed over. A heap on one side on the northern side and a heap on the southern side toward the Dead Sea called here the Salt Sea. And here, notice too, it's called the Arabah, verse 16, 316, the Arabah. So it's this place likely in this vicinity where John the Baptist was immersing the people as a reminder that they leave their old life and enter into new life when they are baptized. So, shall we then, shall we then proclaim the truth no matter who asks us about our business? Will we proclaim it? With courage, will we proclaim it? And when we consider who we are in the, 
in relation to Christ, are we going to be a humble, contrite people? Will we stay humble in what we know, what we proclaim, how we live? Let's do so. All for Christ's sake. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.